Good morning. morning. (laughs) Um, My name is Sarah, and um, I am so glad to be here with you guys today. Um, It is just so good to be here. Don't worry, I brought a stack of tissues (laughs) because um, I've been anticipating this day for a really long time, November 14th specifically, because this was looming large, giving the homily. I'm not a professional. It just was a lot, you know. And I, over the summer and the fall, I kept wondering, like, will we even be in person by then? And um, I'm so glad to see you. (laughs) Um, uh, I'm glad I didn't have the first in-person, true in-person homily, because I'm pretty sure I would have led us all in a 25-minute session of weeping. Um... So this is probably a little bit (laughs) easier on all of us that I was not first. It is so good to see you after all that we have been through. All we've been through individually, collectively, separately, and connectedly. It's been a lot. We've seen the ripple effect of the decisions that others make spread through our lives and our community. Our own decisions have been fraught with what-ifs and weighing out costs and benefits. We've lost a lot. We've lost lives that couldn't be mourned. We've lost celebrations and rituals that signify growth. Some of us have gained new jobs, family members, hobbies, new rituals and practices that uh, are designed to give meaning and structure to the monotony. Life simultaneously held still and kept going. I started a new career in nursing in February of 2020. Wow. (laughs) What a time. What a time to be alive. I had a Uh, For me, I also in 2020 had a baby that April. Tim and I have postponed plane tickets to Japan so many times that the Air Canada people laugh when they pull up our history when we need to change our flights again. (laughs) They're not allowing tourists, so that's why. We were finally able, last summer, we were finally able to gather and celebrate Tim's grandmother's death, or life, I should say, Um, over a year after she had passed. And an update, my sourdough starters are still alive, but that is more due to their resilience than my attention. If you could find one sentence, one idea, to capture or try to capture the last almost two years, what would it be? If you feel comfortable, please turn to your neighbor and share. I like how some things never change, and one of those things is that we're still really chatty. (laughs) Would anybody care to share with the community? It's okay if it's just a lot. What was that? Oh, WTF. Very PC. Excellent. (laughs) Anybody else? Lots of change. 
isolation. Trapped. Sometimes the only way I can sort of frame it is like, it was just a lot, you know. Today, thank you all for sharing with each other, with the community. Um, and uh, today what we're going to look at is Hannah's story in First Samuel. It's a struggle, a story that I have struggled with when I've heard it over the years, um, or whenever it came up, specifically when it came up for my, and no shade, but the conservative Lutheran male pastors who were tasked to handle it. I struggled with this text getting here today, um, and I pray that my words will have meaning to you, and I trust that God's word will be the one that you hear. To recap Hannah's story, we just heard sort of a snippet of it, but she's one of two wives of Elkanah. Um, And actually, I think I may have my screens out of order, but can we have the text up now? Thank you. Um, Elkanah gave portions to his other wife, Peninnah, and her children. The text says he gave Hannah a double portion because he loved her. And Peninnah, consequently, or maybe somehow, just begins to torment Hannah. Maybe it's jealousy or a feeling of superiority. And it causes this, all of this kind of causes Hannah great suffering. She is so distressed and prays with such fervor that she catches the priest Eli's attention, and he does bless her and gives her her heart's wish, which is a child. She has Samuel, and he becomes one of the greatest prophets of the Hebrews. I want a moment, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that this story has a literal significance, especially for those who have, who want kids but can't have them those who want them but aren't in a place where it's feasible right now, or those who have suffered loss. This must be a really hard passage to hear. If it is hard to hear, or for those who might not relate to the literal meaning, I invite you to consider a more figurative reading for this text. Consider a time of great suffering in your life, a time when you were working so hard for something or wanting it so badly, but you just couldn't attain it. One of the things that has rankled me so much about this uh, text in previous interpretations was also, I think, um, my ignorance of its significance. Especially growing up in a conservative Christian environment, I balked against the idea that my own worth or value would be in relation to my family or my ability to create one. So when Elkanah says, why do you weep? Aren't I more than ten sons? I'll be honest, and I'm not necessarily proud to admit, but I was like, yeah, like, come on, can't you be happy without kids? But contextually, like we heard two weeks ago from with Naomi and Ruth, if Elkanah died, Hannah would be destitute. It wasn't necessarily about having kids to complete her vision of her life. It was about security, place, belonging, It's a layer of historical significance that I simply cannot relate to in 2021. She becomes so broken down by the cycles of hope and despair, and her sorrow and longing are met with dismissal from her husband and his other wife. 
I found a reading of this text by Jung Suk Kim, who published a paper for the School of Theology at Virginia University that was really helpful for me. She framed Hannah's transition in three parts. The first is, I am nothing. And I think I've got that. So this doesn't sound very optimistic. But for me, and I'm not an Enneagram 4, I love this idea. I love the idea of being able to get to nothing. But today, where I am today, I have turned a corner from where I was even six months ago. And now I can see the nothingness for what it was or is. The stripping away. The breaking down. The pain and anger and confusion. I couldn't see it when it was happening. And if you're in that place right now, I invite you to tell me I'm full of crap. Because that's exactly what I would have told you six months ago. That there's purpose to the nothing. My I am nothing started sometime in March of 2020. I was a brand new nurse working in an ICU that almost overnight became the COVID ICU. I was eight months pregnant, kind of recapping a little. Um, And uh, we knew nothing at that time when I was working, we knew nothing, almost nothing about how to treat COVID. People were getting so sick so fast. We couldn't let families in, and patients died with their family members saying goodbye via FaceTime. It was disorienting. And I was angry for most of 2020. (laughs) I left the ICU in May of this year and started working for UT as a nurse in a startup clinic for COVID long haulers. To be clear, when I first applied, I thought I was going to be a school nurse counseling UT students on safe sex and sleepy, healthy sleep habits. So I felt a lot of hesitation when I realized I wasn't leaving COVID land, only shifting my focus to the chronic conditions. Long haulers are people who had COVID more than three months ago and are still not feeling better. Many of our patients have been told by expensive doctors and specialists after expensive scans and tests that there's nothing wrong with them. It's in their heads. So when I get on the phone with them, they are sometimes in tears when I tell them there's not nothing wrong with them. It's that we don't understand it well enough. We don't have the right tests to determine what's wrong. Long COVID is a new phenomenon in the history of humanity. And I often think back to um, before doctors and scientists figured out what diabetes is. And maybe some of you know this, but um, I think back about all those people who must have felt like crap for years, dismissed by their doctors, misunderstood by their family. And then the early um, scientists who were literally tasting their diabetics' pee to discover that it was sweet. This is the fact you may know already or be grossed out by. Um, and I think about how like they must have had to taste like non-diabetic pee as well to, for comparison. Like, oh, that one's sweet, that one's gross. Um, so that's a lot of pee. <laughs> I'm so glad my job does not involve tasting pee, though we have no cure. <laughs> We are past that at this time. Our patients, though, are on the edge of 
symptoms with no cure. Problems without solutions. They are in the stripped-down nothingness of sorrow and suffering that is out of their control, just like Hannah. At some point, I trust that we will have a clearer treatment plan, but for now, they suffer in the void of that. I invite you now to think about your own suffering. I think we suffer most when we lack control over it. And maybe that's part of the suffering. What is your suffering stripping from you? What does your nothingness feel like? When we jump back into the text, we transition into our next movement, I am something. Hannah says, I am something by holding fast to her hope and conceiving a child. She is at the temple feast and praying with such distress that she catches Eli's attention, and he thinks she's drunk. In verse 15, we read, but Hannah answered, no, I am deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Eli later becomes blind, but we can see his myopia here. He cannot see her true suffering. So Hannah is dismissed by her husband, mocked by his other wife, and now the temple priest thinks she's drunk. She has to believe so hard that she is something for this response. She finally gets Eli to see her suffering, and he blesses her. He says the Lord has heard her and will give her what she asks. Year after year, she has asked for her heart's desire, but for, for security in an unfair world, and without any control over it, she has suffered. She makes space for Elkanah to empathize with her, but he doesn't. She makes space to be part of her family, but Penina ostracizes her. She makes space to pour out her heart to Eli, to the Lord, but Eli misjudges her. And still, Hannah makes space because she believes I am something. I see Hannah's somethingness in Vox's recent story. When two of our pastors left abruptly last summer, we lost a lot. Our community had no capacity to gather together to regroup, redefine, or suffer together. It was a weird void of nothingness, and suffering without control. But by the grace of God and some otherworldly strength I cannot fathom, Waylon and Harmon and volunteers from every corner of our community held us together. It was the petition, month after month, of confusion, hurt, anger, of our community, month after month, saying, I am something. We are something. And that's how we held together. We were online. Shout out to those online still. It wasn't perfect, but we got a pretty good thing going after a while. The expertise lent to us by our AV people made it pretty good. Our internet folks navigated YouTube and still do better than anyone could have hoped, and they made it pretty good. 
I missed the rhythm of being together, the coffee bar, the mingling, the when I had to give something to someone, I could give it to them at church, or if I needed to get something from someone, I could get it from them at church. But week after week, the faces and voices on the screen was a touchstone. I am something. We are here. And we created space. We used this belief that I am something to maintain a community that we could invite a new leader to join. Our incredible search committee found an awesome candidate in Christopher Mack, and our community voted to ask him to help lead us. Something about our I am something told Christopher he could be part of us and he could walk with us. And so soon he will join us and become part of our leadership. I invite you to consider what beliefs ground you in I am something. What space is created with your belief that I am something? Our third transition might be my favorite. I am anything. We can see it in Hannah's fairy tale ending to her story. She gets a child, it's a son. She commits him to the Lord's service as she promised. Afterward, in chapter 2, she prays and says, God raises up the poor from the dust. God lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them God has set the world. From first being stripped to nothingness, but clinging to hope that she was something, Hannah now affirms and celebrates the foundations that the foundations of the world are the Lord's. And from here, I am anything. Even though she had longed for Samuel as a child, she gives him to the temple service as she had promised. The text says he goes to the temple after he is weaned, so maybe he's just barely a toddler. She gets what she wants, but after that point, he's not hers anymore. Samuel becomes a great prophet and the last of the Hebrew judges. Hannah's story is completed with this moment of, I am anything, when Samuel goes on to doing such important work. God's invitation is in the anything. God is there when the marginalized are finally recognized. God is in the suffering and the stripping down to nothing, and God is in the rebuilding. God is in the I am anything. This is God's invitation now that we've made space for it. When I think about I am anything, it's so big and so open God's invitation to I am anything is like booking around the world plane ticket, where the airline's only rules are that that all of your flights must move you forward. If you started east, you keep going east. If you started west, you go west. At some point, you complete your circle of the globe, and you might end up where you started. But the balance of that movement is held on the pillars of God's presence. 
there's a cyclicality to destruction and rebuilding. And God is in every part of that. And by that, I mean our stories are not completed. We're not Hannah. We're we're still going. Um, We will cycle back through to nothingness. We will cling to somethingness. But I trust that we are grounded enough on God's foundations to return to our I am anything. I have often thought back to a poem that Jason Ickpat shared with us back in 2016. There's a particular image, that of moving the furniture aside so we can dance, that stays with me. To close us today, I'm going to share the audio from him reading that poem back when we were in Space 12 all those years ago. I invite you to settle in your chairs a little. Take a deep breath and let it out. And we'll hear Jason's prayer. Meditation is not only for the pious monk. It was always a fully focused effort, a consummate endeavor. We always set all of our furniture aside when the time came for us to dance as well. I know a rhythm that insists upon itself and its boldness insists upon our mimicry. And I have seen that instinctively we all oblige it, each in the language of our own lineage, all in the recrafting of our memories forward into the void of a boundless age. Here lives our liturgy. I know that careful vigil is not only for the pious nun. We speak small deaths with every word. We reassemble ourselves with every thought. We speak small life with every thought. We reassemble ourselves with every word. We know that there is a rhythm that insists upon its own propagation. And we have seen that it is irresistible. And we have seen that the monks and the nuns are really just dancers like the rest of us, save that they have no furniture left to move. In your home, you must gather up all of the ones you have loved together with all of the ones you have hated and all together in one accord, you must speak nothing and you must perform nothing and you must construct nothing. And in doing so, everything that remains will be embedded in the true rhythm. And thus, naturally, you will find yourselves assigned to recliners and rugs and lamps. And one by one, you will remove them all for the moment to make room, to dance in spirit and in truth. And your feet will write new riffs on ancient patterns and your prayers will be made known to you as you reach out toward them. Remember that dancing is not dancing if you are dancing alone. Remember that you can never truly be alone if you have once been truly together. I hope, um, I pray that you will take those words with you, whatever image struck you there. Um, And I'll close us in the name of our God, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.